0: Anthony's parents died when he was a teenager. And they left him to take care of his younger sister and manage an extensive amount of family land, as well as a pretty large amount of material wealth. And within a few short years, he deserved his sister. He had no lands, and absolutely no money and absolutely nothing to show him. We could chalk that up to being 18, and not really knowing how to handle a large amount of finances. After all, what teenager could you really expect to manage vast wealth wisely? If you ask my wife, I still can't manage even the small wealth thing like that. According to the world standards, Anthony was anything but wise. And I, I, I will admit I have left out parts of his story that may change some of our minds, but the people that knew him and knew all his motivations for everything that he did still saw him as someone who had gone off the deep end. Here are the facts. Anthony hadn't abandoned his sister. Rather, he left her in the care of a group of single women who loved her as if she were part of their own family. They raised her better than he could knew that. He also didn't lose the land due to some sort of back taxes or extravagant living on his part. Rather, he gave away the land to the villagers that lived around his family's estate. He didn't spend all of his money on himself, seeking pleasure like you might have expected. Rather, he gave it all away to the poor. One morning, Anthony had gone to church, and he heard a sermon on the story of Jesus and the rich young ruler. That's the story where this rich young man comes to Jesus and says, "What do I have to do to inherit eternal life?" And Jesus says, "How do you kept the law?" And the young man says, "I kept it perfectly." And Jesus responds to him, and "Then sell everything you have." Give the money to the poor, and come and follow me. And the rich young man walks away, totally defeated, unable to follow Jesus, to give up his grip on his wealth. Anthony he heard that story, and went home, and unlike the rich young ruler, he did exactly that. He felt as if Jesus had spoken to him personally. He gives away his family's land, people that use it for farming. He sold all of the valuables his family owned. And gave the money to the poor. He left his riches behind. And when he lived in the desert, and the church knows him as Saint Anthony the Great, one of the great desert fathers, a monk who lived his life in poverty, mixing about with poor, wretched people, sharing with them the gospel of grace. While Anthony's decisions may seem irrational or strange, or at least. Yes, I am going to say, not for all of us. Maybe even not for any of us. It highlights the incredible cost of Christian discipleship in a very tangible way for all of us. And it should at least cause us to think a little more deeply about how difficult it is to let that really take root and show itself in our lives. It is incredibly hard to think about what kind of practical expression Christian faith should take. David Platt, in his book suggests that the type of abandonment that St. Anthony uh, demonstrates for us is for us is really at the core of Jesus' gospel in the presentation. It is an abandonment of self. And as we look at Isaiah 58, we're going to see that there's a huge difference between what we normally do in this life and what God really expects of us, even in here, in the church. And we're going to see that there is a vast difference between selfish worship. Selfless worship. Before we dive into that, however, I do want to offer um, a caution, I guess, and a, and a clarification. Um, the gospel is very full of paradox. On the one hand, it's very simple to understand, and on the other hand, it's just very, very complex. On the on one hand, it's, it's really straightforward and easy to apprehend, and on the other hand, it's hidden. It's almost like a riddle. And in one sense, the gospel is absolutely, utterly free. And yet at the same time, it costs everything. And this morning, we're going to we're gonna kind of submerge ourselves under the water and, and, and try to look and see what is it that the gospel demands of our lives. And so I want, right up front, and I'm gonna going to try to run of this throughout the morning, but we have got to really know that the gospel requires nothing because Jesus has done everything. You can do nothing to get to Jesus because he's done everything to get to you. In fact, there's nothing that you could do to make Jesus love you. He loves you because he loves you. That's it. But when you let the gospel really start to grip you, you start to realize that you're not the center of the universe. You're not even the key player in your own life. And you realize that you are poor and destitute and left for dead by sin, and though you have made Jesus your enemy, he made you his sister or his brother. You start to realize that you have no life apart from him. Your life is hid with Christ it is wrapped up in his life. And it's then that you realize that the gospel actually costs everything. Because it requires you to give up your grip on your own life. So with that in mind, let's look at selfish worship. At the beginning of our passage in Isaiah 58, God tells Isaiah that the Israelite people are seeking out. And they seem to be very eager for him to come near and they want to engage in some sort of really passionate worship experience. They seem to be a nation that wants to do what is right. And yet right after that, Isaiah reports for us a complaint that the Israelites bring against God. They say, we've fasted, and you haven't noticed. We've humbled ourselves, and it's like you don't even see us. Are you blind, God? Why should we fast if you're not going to notice? If we're not going to get something out of this, then really, two years they're both living in New York City and they hang out a lot. Kramer is Jerry's crazy neighbor, right? So he's the guy, you know, really tall, crazy hair, he's always looking a little crazy. We've heard a coffee show on TBS. He's always coming over and borrowing things from Jerry. He never has a job, he always seems to have money coming in from somewhere, and he's always mooching and always scheming some crazy, just really hackney kind of money-making scheme that never works out and yet somehow he survives. And then there's George Costanza. George is Jerry's best friend. They grew up together and have been friends since, like, junior high. And all the characters in Seinfeld are are pretty overdrawn and and really fun, but I think George might be my favorite. He, in any given moment, is on the verge of complete mental breakdown. Uh, He he really is just incredible. And and the funny thing is, is that it's been said that Larry David, who's one of the co-creators and one of the head writers of the show, it said that the George Costanza character really reflects him. That he's really this neurotic and, and this kind of crazy, but I, and that may be, but I think what Larry David did so brilliantly in those characters is that he unmasked the insecurity and the selfishness that drives almost each and every one of us. He just did it in a way that was funny and a little bit more obvious than we tend to make it to our friends. So there's this one episode in Seinfeld called The Calzone. And George is working at the New York Yankees and he's always looking for a way to get in good with the higher ups so that he can get a promotion or whatever. And one day at work he has a calzone and his boss asks him what he's eating, asks for a bite. The boss immediately gets hooked on these calzones. And so every day George goes to the same pizzeria and buys two calzones and then he goes and he has lunch with his boss. So he's, you know, kind of getting the boss's ear for an hour each day and And life is looking up. He says, I've got this guy hooked, and I can tell him whatever I want. He's going to do it. He's going to listen to my ideas. Well, at one point, George is over at Jerry's apartment, and he's relaying an event that had happened the day before. George says to Jerry, so let me ask you a question about the tip jar. I had a little thing with the calzone guy this week. I go to drop a buck in the tip jar, and just as I'm about to drop it in, he looks the other way. And then when I'm leaving, he gives me this look, like thanks for nothing. I mean, if they don't notice it, what's the point? Jerry responds, so you don't make a habit of giving to the blind. George says, without missing a beat, not bills. <laughs> the Israelites are saying to God, if you're going to be blind to what we're doing for you, we're not going to give bills. We're not going to give our best. If you're not going to notice what we're doing, then what's the point of even doing it? And let's be honest. If the Israelites are right, if George Costanza is right, if most of our world is right, and we live in a system, a world system in which there is a giant tally board that at the end of life, everything you've done is going to be tallied either on the good side or the bad side. If that's how the world works... If you're not being noticed, what's the point? If God, the cosmic tallyer, has taken a vacation for a day, and he's not going to notice all of the good stuff you're doing, and you're not going to get credit, why do it? This is George Costanza Christianity. You see, selfish worship, this kind of Christianity, is at its core anti-gospel, because on the one hand, it assumes, first off, that God needs impressing. And even more ludicrously, it assumes that we can actually impress him. And if we're only able to impress him enough, if only he'd see us putting money into his tip jar, we'll be all set. Life will be totally easy. And when life gets hard, as it inevitably will, we'll start to blame God. And our motivations will be unmasked. And we'll realize that we are only worshiping in order to get something out of it. You see, selfish worship is nothing more than self-worship. We refuse to take ourselves out of the center. We refuse to die to ourselves. We refuse to die to some sort of scorecard, George Costanza Christianity. And without even knowing it, we start to visualize Christianity like a report card. And if we get A's, we get ice cream. That's all we know. What does this have to do with being a church for others? That's the core value we're talking about this morning. So what does this even have to do? How does worship and selfish or selfless worship line up with being a church for other people? It has everything to do with it because there's a strange little hang-up about human behavior. You become like what you worship. You become like what you worship. So if you see God as the cosmic scorekeeper who's keeping track of your behavior and if you do good enough, you're worthy enough to be his friend. But if you don't, then you're not. And so that either leaves you feeling really prideful because you're buddies with God or you're angry and despaired because you're, you're getting picked last for softball, right? You're not on the team you wanted to be on. You're not friends. And if we think that this is how God rules the universe, that he is keeping score with everything we do and don't do, then that's how we're going to treat other people. We're going to keep score for other people and how they do things to us or don't do things to us. If we think that God only loves us when we can do something for him, then we will only love people when they can do something for us. You see that connection? If we think that God only loves us when we can do something for him, We will only love other people when they can do something for us. You become like what you worship. And we start to assume that this is the way the world works. And honestly, this is the way most of the world works. It is a result of selfish worship. Self-worship. And yet the kind of worship that Isaiah is calling us to is very, very strange when laid up against the world system. We're back to Seinfeld, okay? As I mentioned earlier, I do love the show. Uh, Larry David, one of the writers, as I said, had this uncanny ability to write characters that, that were just, everything they did was driven by selfishness. And so Elaine, um, Jerry's ex-girlfriend, she's usually one of the more sane of the four characters, and usually she thinks of herself as above the other three. She's at least above George and Kramer, because they're, you know... <laughs> So she's at least got that. She's at least a better person than George and Kramer. And there's this one episode called The Bizarro Jerry, where Elaine gets a chance to leave these low-down, selfish characters behind her and enter this new world. And she's explaining to Jerry these new friends that she has, and Jerry was a Superman fan, so if you're into comics, you'll know where they get the title. There's The Bizarro World in Superman's world, where everything's upside down and backwards, and Jerry says this is what you're entering into. And so she's leaving behind Jerry and George and Kramer. And she's becoming friends with Kevin, Gene, and Feldman. And they're like exact opposites of each other. And so in her regular world, her friends are very selfish. They're always taking from each other. In this bizarro world, the friends are always giving. They're very kind. In her regular world, they watch a lot of TV. They go to the movies. In her new world, the bizarro world... Her friends go to the library. They read books. In her regular world, George especially is always looking for a way to beat the system. In the bizarro world, Jean, who's sort of George's counterpart, he, he wants to fix any, anything in society that might be broken or kind of off kilter. He wants to fix it. He wants to make it better. She's finding a bizarro world. And there's a scene where Elaine shows herself to be a true member of the regular world. She walks into Kevin's apartment and without asking, goes right for the fridge, opens up a jar of olives and just starts eating them, putting her fingers in the jar, putting them in her mouth, no big deal, and Kevin says, what are you doing? Eating olives. In, in regular world, this would be fine. I can just come in and do what I want without asking. Kevin says, much like a father to a junior high daughter, ever heard of asking? And so she kind of you know, puts the jar back, and then Jean comes in with some really exciting news, and any time Elaine gets excited on the show, She braces herself, screams, get out, and and pushes them as hard as she can. And so there's all these things of her pushing people through doors and into walls. So she just knocks Jean completely over and hurts him. And the rest of the people in the bizarro world are so kind. They look at her like, what are you doing? You've completely wounded Jean. And she is no longer welcome in the bizarro world. And she has to go back to her regular life. And though Elaine didn't get to stay in the bizarro world. The kind of strangeness that she experienced there is very much akin to the sort of strangeness that God calls us to as gospel people. See, Isaiah is telling us that God is not interested at all in our piety. And that's almost completely backwards from everything we've heard in the world. Rather, what God is interested in is changing us fundamentally at the core with his grace. The kind of religious fanaticism that God wants in his people is a kind that leads them to loose the chains of injustice, to set the oppressed free, to break the yokes of the weak, feed the hungry, shelter the homeless, clothe the naked. For too long, much of American Christianity has viewed godliness in a very lopsided way. It's either been seen as austere moral purity or simply social action. And I would hazard to guess that for a lot of us in this room, we've been lopsided on the former side. And I'm not suggesting that we forsake moral purity as an aspect of God's character or His holiness or something that's supposed to be in God's people, but I do want us to see that there is a much more fundamental way in which God's people act like Him. And that is by freeing slaves, giving to the undeserving, and satisfying the needs of the oppressed. In the city of Portland, it is, it is very obvious which people are being oppressed, which people have needs, right? The, the homeless in this town have, have a pretty good face in the city, and there are ministries like Dinner and a Movie and Portland Rescue Mission that are doing amazing things to help these people that are at the lowest ends of society, that absolutely need help, and we can rejoice, we should rejoice that in Portland, it is almost impossible to go hungry, There are so many social services for people that are completely down and out that this city has decided we're going to take care of these people. And so for a lot of these folks, they can get a place to stay, they can get a hot meal at least, and we should rejoice with that. But there's another group of people in the city that is largely unknown. The working poor that have been relegated to certain neighborhoods, certain parts of the city, and they work so many hours a day at pretty low wages that most of us will never see them. They're working too much and then they go home to be with their families. And think about this statistic 14% of the families in this city are living at the poverty line or lower. And when God tells us that we are to satisfy the needs of the oppressed, we are not just to keep them hovering right over the brink of extinction, we are to help them flourish in every possible way. We are to satisfy their needs so they can become positive members of society and have a chance at entering into the things that we take for granted here in Portland. The strange thing about all of this is that the prophet tells us that this is what will satisfy our hearts. When we forego immediate satisfaction to supply the needs of someone else, that's what will truly satisfy us. It's a bizarro world. It's an upside-down way of living. And the reason it's so strange, the reason that it's so hard to grasp, is because our selfishness runs far deeper than we ever thought possible. Self-centeredness taints everything we do. Even, and often especially, our religion. So if you consistently think of Christianity as a way to improve yourself, as a way to make your life better or easier, or as a way to escape this world, then you are in for a world of disappointment because Jesus made no such promises. The promise of Jesus is to bring you life. But if you think for a second that he's offering you life that still has you front and center, climbing a ladder to success, You are dead wrong. The warnings that we heard earlier from Jesus himself and the Apostle James might even suggest that we are in danger of having missed the gospel entirely. Christian, you have been given life, but not a life that is your own. You have been given the life of Christ, And when the Holy Spirit worked in you to bring you faith and repentance, you were brought into new life, the life of Christ. And it's not just that Jesus owns your life, it's that he is your life. And as your life, there is not one centimeter that he cannot claim. It's his. So if you as an individual or we as a church are going to say that we have the life of Christ, that we are the body of Christ then we have got to realize that Jesus is the absolute antithesis of selfishness. We call his church the body of Christ. Think about what happened to his body. It was crushed and broken. He emptied himself to take on our sin, our misfortune, our pain. He entered into our poverty and made himself poor so that we might be rich in him. He didn't just give to us out of his excess. He didn't just give to us when he had a little bit left over. He made himself poor that we might be rich in him. He poured out his life quite literally for us. And when that truly grips us, we will start to do what Isaiah says we should have done all along. We will begin to pour ourselves out for others. We will take on the burdens of horrible, ungrateful broken people in order to relieve them of it. And the strange part of it all is that if we really let the gospel sink down deep into our gut, we won't be helping people as a way to make ourselves feel better. We won't be helping people as a way to get rid of some sort of moral guilt. We won't be helping people hoping that we can just feel fulfilled by it. Instead, we will, like Jesus, become so utterly unconcerned with ourselves that our entire lives will be lived in service for other people. This is true selfless worship. When you finally stop wondering if anyone's going to notice, and you just serve other people because of the life of Christ that is in you. Much like Israel, we are so prone to making worship just what we do here this morning. Singing songs, praying prayers. If being a worshiper means showing up on Sunday and engaging at some level, then we're all doing great. But Isaiah says, not only is that not enough, but that is not it at all. And Bruce Waltke sums up nicely what we see in Isaiah and throughout the Old Testament. He says that true worshipers, those that are truly righteous, are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community because they realize Everything they have been given is a gift from God. Are you willing to disadvantage yourself in order to advantage people that by most standards don't deserve it? This is true worship. To break the yoke of oppression. To spend ourselves, pour ourselves out in behalf of the poor and satisfy the needs of the people around us. Are you willing to worship Jesus in this way? What if this kind of worship meant quitting your job? What if worshiping in this way required you to sell your business, to lose the entire professional identity that you've built for yourself? What if this kind of worship required you to give your car away to someone who might need it more? What if worshiping in this way caused you to forego a promotion and a raise so that you could spend more time meeting needs in your community? What if it caused you to not go on for a further education that would further your career and allow you to move to a nicer neighborhood and instead you move to a worse neighborhood and invested in the people around you? What if this kind of worship means that you and your family need to go worship somewhere else? At another church. And I say this with absolute fear and trembling. What if this kind of worship was so deeply rooted in all of us and we became so selfless and so into the mission of God that we closed the doors to this church? What then? Are we really willing to do this kind of worship? This is where we start to uncover our idols. What is it that we want more than for the mission of God to be accomplished through us in this world? That's the question. And we can all get distracted in talking about, well, we know that God doesn't really need us, he can do it on his own. We all know that. The reality is that God has set up this world so that he would work out his mission through his church, through us, his people. So, what is it that we want more than for his mission to be worked out through us in the world? Is it money? Are we more concerned with comfort? Having a nice warm home? Comfortable couches? Nice furniture? Good food? Is it the security of a bank account or a good job? Maybe it's the relationships of our family. What do we want more than for the mission of God to be worked out in this world? Do we want the respect of our community? Our peers? Our co-workers? Are we as a church going to be more obsessed with theological astuteness and liturgical prowess than the mission of God himself? I'm not suggesting that any of these things are bad, but if if there's one thing in that list or another thing that I didn't mention that is keeping you from selling out completely to the mission of God in this world, and that is your idol. We're doing a core values series for InTown, but... This isn't really about in town at all. This is about the mission of God in the world through Jesus and his church. And we are taking it to a people that are dying and desperate for it. And until we are willing to be weak, until we are willing to lay down and die, until we are willing to actually shut all of this down, all of the music, all of the lights all of the relationships, until we are willing to foolishly close it all down so that his mission might go on, then we will simply be clinging to our own need to succeed. What do you want more than for the mission of God to be accomplished in this world through you? Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential, not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of Him, that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us the wisdom of God, that is, our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. We are to be a church for others because we serve a God who is a God for others. And unless we are willing to strip everything else away, We have not worshipped him truly. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we are so unaware of how we should even begin to let go of the grip we have on our own life. We need your grace. We need your mercy. Jesus, we want to be the kind of people that reach out to others, not out of selfish motivation, but because we are so enamored with what you have done and what you are calling us to, and we see that you love them. You find them worthy, and so we love them and find them worthy. Jesus, would you change us into the kind of people that are willing to give everything away for your kingdom. We pray it in your name. Amen.